morning, Derek. How's it going? Well, hello, Neil. I'm in great form this morning. Thanks very much. Um, oh, great. Actually, yeah. Since we had a bit of a break over Christmas, it feels like ages since it I've did. seen you. So, uh, yeah. Good, so, good it seems like we're starting yeah. all over again, but it's it's great. It's a great feeling to be back, getting back on the horse, isn't it? It is. It is. Absolutely. And really looking forward now to um, speaking with Nigel Eli, who will have more than one story to tell. Um, he was in two para at the Battle of Goose Green in the Falkland Islands. Wow. Um, fought in Iraq uh, as uh, an SAS man. And, you know, it's it actually feel very privileged to be talking to uh, an SAS man. It, it is a most secret society, uh, I, I think, uh, compared to uh, any of the American versions um, where they obviously don't believe in uh, loose lips sink ships. Uh, <laughs> they would uh, they would talk about it a lot and even the, the, the CIA operatives and all that kind of thing. But um, uh, Nigel wrote a book last year uh, commemorating the Falklands War and um, called Goose Green. And wow, I mean, what a book, what a book uh, written from first person accounts uh, put together in such a way that it, it, it's a pacey narrative um, that keeps you, you feel like you're there, you know, I mean, obviously, as, as much as a book can do that for you, it really does. Um, and I believe Nigel's working on another project um, at the moment as well. So uh, with that in mind, um, I think we should say hello and welcome, Nigel. Indeed. Thanks for inviting me on. It's a great pleasure. Thank you so much. And it's, as Derek outlined there, such a, you know, a unique guest to have on board, somebody who served at the sharp end, as it were. You know, we, we've had, we spoke about the Falklands before on this show, Nigel, uh, myself and Derek can relate to a lot of people our age because we kind of grew up with it. It was our TV war. It was the first war, yeah. you know, that we saw actually unfolding on screen. And, uh, you know, even, mm -hmm. even though we were in Ireland, you know, there was a lot of coverage of it here. And I remember distinctly, you know, those, those iconic images, uh, footage from the battle. And because, we were, you know, I was really into history at the time, I was only a kid, but it was, you know, dramatic, exciting, if, if you're allowed to use that word, and, and tragic. You know, we remember the scenes from Sir Galahad and those brave, the, the Welsh guards and the, the brave helicopter pilots. So it's all coming back to me now, even just talking about it. But you know what? You were there. You were there. Yeah. That goose green. That's astonishing. Yeah, um, I was lucky in my military career, really, um, because I served with Tupara. Uh, Tupara were the first to land on the island, the landing crafts, at early hours. So there was no footage of us landing. The landing craft you see hitting the beach during the day, they were full of Marines with life preservers on. Mm. Um, we were first actually on the high ground, Sussex Mountains. Uh, we were first into battle, first to win a victory. Two para were the only battalion to fight two battles in that war, Goose Green and Wireless Ridge. And we were first into Port Stanley, the actual capital. So it was quite a big first for two para. I'm not saying that we, we won the war, mm. but, but we were just lucky enough to be there at the front. Um, and in particular with me, uh, with Goose Green, I just happened to be the point man for the part of the day battle, just the way the battle unfolded, because uh, many of your listeners will, will understand the, the, the military combat formation of marching into battle. It's not so much the extended line that you that you see on the TV at Sharps, rifles and stuff like that, you know, from the uh, Crimean War or Napoleonic Wars. 
it's a diamond head formation. So, or a, or a spearhead. There's one man at the front, two behind, then four or five, six. So you're like an arrowhead as well. Uh, so I was unfortunately or fortunately that guy on the front uh, for that battle during the day. So, yeah, I mean, it's um, <laughs> looking back at it now, 40 years has brought a lot, lot back. I spent three years researching uh, the particular battle for Goose Green. Um, I, because I was point man, I mean, I really didn't know what the hell was going on behind me. Mm. And uh, we, when we actually got through and won the victory, we just carried on to the next to the next battle. It was just like that. And we didn't sort of uh, disseminate anything at all. So the last three years putting this book to be, together has been really humbling. And um, because of my background with Tupara and the SES and uh, dabbled in being a, a war photojournalist, um, I thought that it gave me great uh, qualities to pursue this knowing that 40 years on some of the guys wouldn't want to talk uh some of the guys memories are bad but what i found out was their memories were really really good uh, in the parts that yeah. they wanted to remember um, that's what i found extraordinary about it all to, to give the listeners like a bit of an idea of what this battle was like because like to me right you, you, if you look at the images from the Falklands you know okay it's a lot of green it looks a little bit like Ireland and England and um, it looks like kind of easy terrain there's not big mountains or anything like that but to put it in context I'm a hill walker and I like going sometimes off off the path uh, in the in the Irish hills um, and the, the the going you know what I mean you can you can walk on a path and do 40k in 10 hours and you go off a path and you could be walking through all that gorse and all that kind of thing and you would do you know 20k in 10 hours it's tough tough yeah. going and yeah. you had like you guys had uh, the, the argentines had 35 millimeter anti-aircraft guns um with a yeah. whole lot of tracer and stuff like firing at you while you are are moving forward i know you mentioned napoleonic wars there but and the arrowhead you are moving forward on tough ground into in, in, into the guns yeah yeah what how how the battle unfolded was it was a six phase seven phase battle with colonel jones um and we started off at night um i was in c company the patrol company which uh, actually is half a company strength about 50 guys and our job was the eyes and ears of the battalion. So we were like a mini SAS within two para. Um, and we were sort of the old sweats, although I was only 22 at the time, <laughs> you know, we were the old sweats. Um, and our job was to go and lay the start line, which is an imaginary line on the ground for when the rifle companies who actually do the fighting uh, come up, we set them up and then they go and do their advance to contact and do the attack. Um, well, the companies did that. A company, D company, B company did that. and. Come first light, A Company were held up on a position called Darwin Hill, uh, which is a pimple on the landscape. And they were taking casualties, and that's when we lost Colonel Jones, our commanding officer. Um, and when A Company had eventually won that battle, uh, we immediately went through C Company, marched through that to hold the far ground overlooking Goose Green. Um, because that's what you do as a soldier. You, you fight for the ground and you hold it and then you put a cordon out. Um, it was a complete, it was a typical sort of, uh, it's a kaleidoscope of memories I've got of that because it was just like something out of the Second World War movie. 
you know, there was uh, men crying, dead bodies, Argentinians and our blokes wounded, medics running all over the place. And uh, the whole idea of tactical situation went straight out the window because there was weapons everywhere and uh, there were still Argentinians in the trenches, which as we move forward in this position, we had to clear. Um, and then we held the position on the uh, south side and that's when we saw Goose Green, a sort of large settlement about 800 metres in front of us with a sort of just a, a, a rolling slope going down with that, as you say, Derek, the tufts of grass. Um, and it was just quite amazing. I could see the Argentinians. They had an airfield on the right hand side where they had these Bacaras and all along the airfield, they had these anti-aircraft weapons, the Orlikan guns. Uh, unbeknown to us, in front of us was a minefield. And beyond that was the Beaufort guns. They'd taken off these ship guns, put them in the ground roll. You know, the old magazines that go on top, they fight like they usually fire on, on, on ships. Um, we didn't have any heavy weapons. We weren't given any top cover, i.e. aircraft, yet the, the Argentinians had fantastic uh, pilots and they had these ground attack turboprop uh, planes called Picaras, which were deadly for us. Anyway, an hour or so after A Company had cleaned up their position, we got the advance to contact to move into Goose Green and I was put out front. I don't, I don't think I'm not, a, I'm a likable chap. <laughs> my, uh, my boss, Ken, who we stay in touch with, I did say to him, why did you keep putting me out as point man? Because that's the first one they take out, isn't it, of course? Uh, he said, no, because you were good. You know, we could trust you, which was kind of nice. Mm. Um, so we advanced a contact, about 50 of us, towards these uh, Argentinians who we could see. And I wondered why they weren't firing at us. Maybe they thought they'd repelled us from Darwin Hill. And we were like coming down to see them. Uh, we got about 300 meters and uh, all hell let loose. The Orlikan guns opened up, uh, both the guns, uh, absolutely everything. So we ran like hell. And uh, unbeknown to me, I found this after the battle, that our uh, HQ element of C Company, which was at the center of this arrowhead, a group of about 10 guys with the officer commanding, had been hit. Uh, I hadn't been hit, but they went for the largest mass, I guess, and uh, they smacked all them up. Uh, all but one guy survived. One was killed. Nine were, uh, one was killed. Eight were injured, seriously. And uh, Charlie, he, he was left there. And he still has survivor's guilt to this day because he couldn't move out of this fold in the ground. And he just watched us assault down into Goose Green. Um, yeah, it's quite shocking. And we fought through... And they, we fought, fought through a pig farm and the Argentinians had uh, upturned the pig uh, styes and used them as uh, top cover. And we got into a position where all these tents and these bits of pig styes were all over the place. And we were like fighting through them and, and you could, the wind kept changing and you could hear Spanish voices and we were on top of them. And then I turned around and then there was 20 prisoners that had surrendered and we're still in the middle of a battle. And I always say to this day, and we hear about the business in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and that, and I'm so, I, I'm so grateful that none of the guys took a pop shot at those prisoners. Uh, they were in a pretty shitty condition. One, one guy had lost his leg from his knee downwards. Uh, the officer had his gun, uh, his side pistol, but all the rest have thrown their weapons away. 
And this is in the middle of a battle, for Christ's sakes. I mean, we're getting bombed and everything else and mortars and artillery. And I'm turning around and think that's somebody else's problem. I've got to concentrate what's to my front. And a few of our guys went down. Um, kind of shitty to see your mate screaming around next year. I mean, my mate Jock, Jock Boland, uh, they had the Arges had mounted this rocket launcher on top of the gardens, uh, the kids' swings at this school uh, on the playground. And we were so close to the Arges that the, the, the rocket was fired off remotely. And what they call the discalding Saval, which is the back end of the rocket, the fins, the HE bit, the high explosive bit, goes whizzing past, which does all the damage. But poor old Jock turned slightly to the left and the fins of this discarding Salvo rocket sliced right across his chest and took out his lung and everything else. Um, that happened right next to us. <laughs> we, what we're doing, I mean, we got the medic down on the ground to do it. The, the bomb exploded in the estuary about 20 metres behind us. And uh, we all went for his ammunition and his tobacco pouch. And he still talks about it to this day. You know, he's almost dying there, bless him. And uh, we go for his ammunition, his tobacco. Survival, um, survival instincts there, Nigel. Um, yeah. A very, very simple, basic question, if, if you can um, humor me. What, what did you feel like? What, what did it feel like in the, in the middle of that sort of uh, level of contact? What was your overriding emotion? Or, or sense? Um, I, I felt nothing. I, I feel nothing to this day. It, it, it's just a, a motion you go through. And when I researched this book, I, um, I found this a lot with the guys. They weren't concerned with anything else apart from their mates. They weren't concerned what another section was doing. They weren't concerned what another company was doing. They were concerned with their little bunch of mates. And within C Company, we split up because we were fractured at the very beginning. And all we had to do was go forward. We couldn't go back because we were on an open slope. It was like a billiard table. So we had to go into dead ground. Yeah, I still feel, I feel very lucky to this day. And like I say, interviewing these guys for the book, um, their emotions are still very strong. Um, but when I say to them, oh, don't you remember he was next to you and can't remember a thing. Two meters away, can't remember a thing. But they can remember something profound. Like, I can't remember, um, I can't remember being shot. I got shot in the thigh. Um, and I can't remember, uh, I headbutted an RG in a trench. But my, my mate eventually, because she didn't talk about this stuff, even after the battle. You didn't go, oh, yeah, I did. You know, I killed that guy. Did you see me do that? I just didn't do it. And that's what makes the story of, uh, you know, Harry, Prince Harry. So, I mean, a lot of combat war fighters are going to go, mm, don't think so. Yeah. You might get the sniper that sort of notches up his kills on the butt of his rifle, you know. I mean, they might do that. That's what they do. But certainly blokes that get in close, mm. no. Um and, so and, I felt, I really felt, I felt nothing apart from, thank God I'm still here and my mates are still here. Really bizarre, you know. And this is a common sort of thread or theme through all accounts of combat, isn't it? You know, you, you read about accounts, like you mentioned there, during the Second World War. Um, this this weekend was the anniversary of Rourke's Drift. Um, yes, that, yes. Yeah. That, that, you know, I've been reading a lot about that this weekend. And 
it's the same accounts like from 200 years ago even further back right up to what you're talking mm -hmm. about is that when when you're an infantryman at, at the sharp end you're not aware or even conscious or even interested in the big picture as such it's just mm -hmm. who's right in front of you right yeah, there it's a survival instinct i think it's a it's a survival instinct because you can't survive without your mates and vice versa mm -hmm. and um you don't not many of my guys could articulate themselves, not even myself at that time. We're all working class lads. You know, we're not C3 Sassoons. We don't have an education as such, you know, where you can write, you know, you can sort of pontificate about the mud and stuff and, you know, you know, bent down double like old donkeys or something. I mean, you just get on and do it. It's when later in life you reflect, um, and I got some great stories. If there's any such thing as a war book that has some beautiful stories in it, I know it's an oxymoron in a sense, but I think Goose Green has it because it's it it, it moves away from the uh, basic historic uh, books that are taken from the ops logs, and the operations logs are added to over a period of minutes during a particular instant, weeks, months, even years. They're added. And that's how most historians get their books from to, to write about battles. Whereas Goose Green is from the heart of these, these guys. And yeah. some fundamental stuff. People that bring in the ammunition. You don't hear about these people. The guys that have to make the cross for the dead, uh, the burial parties, how you go and distribute, you know, all the dead have to be stripped naked and the sergeant major has to, the RSM has to go along with the doctor to, to identify the wounds and and death you know all these stuff what happens to a dead man's kit well it gets distributed amongst people that need it you know is, is that what really, happens really, really deep stuff really yeah that's that stuff you just just don't think about but just getting yeah. back to the point of the kind of book that yeah. you've written i think i can speak for derek as well as myself is that you know it, while history is interesting all aspects of it it's the accounts of the people who were actually there that really <laughs> punch punch home isn't it Derek it's it's you can read uh, there's nothing wrong and it is important to have you know the the armchair historians and generals uh you know recounting what happened and which element went where and the dates and all that stuff like really but it's the accounts of people who were there and they're rare enough as well Nigel I, I would suggest you know well well yeah. if Nigel hadn't had written the book actually I I think it would have left a massive hole in, in that piece of history because uh, it, it is and for me it's the, the defining uh, book of the the Falklands War and oh, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> honest to God, like if, if, and if you haven't done the, and the effort uh, to put it together and how you actually just mm. you know put all those disparate pieces of of uh, you know memory into a, a, a narrative that started at the beginning and and went right through, yeah. so absolutely fantastic. But can I can I ask you this now to move move into I suppose other spheres? Uh, how did you end up in the Paris number one? And number two, was it your experience in the Falklands that led you to become an SAS member? Well, yeah, I I, um, I sort of grew up in the 60s and 70s uh, and uh, I had a state education. I grew up in South London at the time. And um, you either went into the print, which was you know you're running the printing machines for the press newspaper or you you you, you took some labor's job uh being a being a tradesperson 
wasn't the correct thing. You know, I mean, bricky become a bricky and an electrician these days. I mean, you earn two, three hundred pound a day. I mean, it's a cracking, it's a cracking profession for any young person now. But back then, it was looked upon as the bad. You know, you're just working class. Um, I was running with the wrong guys. I would have been in. Well, I'd like to think I wouldn't have got into jail, but I was looking at criminality. Uh, you know, life of crime, which is kind of look back at it now, I think so sad. So it was either that or join or join, join the forces, get the hell out of it. And um, I went to join the Royal Marines. Can you believe that? And um, at the time, I joined in Blackheath, South London. At the time, the careers for Navy was next door to the Army Careers Office. I walked in there and I passed all the physical exams and I had to go. Uh, uh, I had to come back and uh, uh, while they sort of just ticked me off and vetted me. And I, I came back to the office and uh, they said, you, you've done well. You passed the physical, you passed the, you know, the everything else. But we can't accept you in the Marines because uh, you've got a police record. And I said, what do you mean? They said, you stole a car. Well, technically I did. I borrowed a friend's car when I was 15 and I didn't think that would go on a police record. So I was really cheesed off and upset. And I, cause I really put my heart on the Marines because they got a great PR thing. They still have today, you know, they're very smart and uh, that. So I said to the Sergeant in the Marines, I said, Oh, come on. I, I said, well, what's my, what's my options? And he said, well, buddy, you can always go next door and join the paras. They'll have you. <laughs> cause if you know, the paras and the Marines are real, arch enemy so i went next door and joined the paras <laughs> and i didn't look back because obviously the falklands bless the marines they really didn't do a lot uh, and i'm not slagging them off they're fantastic soldiers and if i ever went into war again uh i'd have them right by me you know but they as i say it's the luck they didn't they, they tried to stop two para trying to get into stanley but because we were on the nearest feature wireless ridge to stanley we just ran off that feature and took stanley um, so that uh, that that picture you see of the Marines outside Governor House in Port Stanley raising the Union Jack was taken a day later, and it was a bit like the Iwo Jima raising yeah. of the American flag there. We raised the two-para flag at yeah. Governor House when we got there, and we were told to take it down. But yeah, so I joined the Paris instead, and I, I, I that's a really good piece of luck for me because I kind of enjoyed it. I excelled at it. Mm. Um, yeah. I excelled at it so much that when we came back, I, I decided to join the SES because I was getting bored with the powers. I needed something more to challenge me. And um, I was young. I was one of the youngest to, to join the SAS at that time, just after the Falklands. Uh, I was let go because they thought, oh, you know, he'll be back. And the thing with the powers is, um, if you go as a corporal, you lose your shadow rank, you know, you, you come back you, in the paras. If you're like in the green jackets or any of the infantry units and you go and you have a try and you fail and you go back, they, you still keep your rank. But in the paras, they see it as a bit of a, because they lose so many blokes to the SAS. Mm. You know, it's, they're trying to put you off. So I went there, I passed and um, yeah, I, I enjoyed that as well. I enjoyed the whole idea of it, but you get to a certain point in your life where the Falklands War was such a different because I did several tours of Northern Ireland as well, you know. And in its time when I was there, that was extremely gritty. Really, you know. I think people don't realise because we've had twenty years of being in the sandpit. You know, I mean, yeah. Northern Ireland was very, very gritty. And very and hard. My, I, I, 
a lot yeah. about yeah I've, I've i've listened to a lot about that and yeah it'd be oh. interesting to hear your experience uh, nigel yeah and my my opinions have changed well, my opinions have changed. yeah very much changed i'm i'm you know i'm pro island and um you know mm. all that believe it or not you know and that's that's from the heart i think it's because of what i've experienced in in my career with war but, yeah uh, yeah, where where about in Northern Ireland were you stationed? Uh, well, when I did the two-year tour with uh, uh, um, Tupac, we were at Balakinley, and okay. we did the Bandit Country, Crossford Lane, Fork Hill. Well, yeah. I caught the second Uri Besbrook. I caught the second bomb at Warren Point. Oh, oh Jesus! Uh, yeah, wow. we, that, that was awakening. That was an awakening to me. I was on the QRF, the Quick Reaction Force from Besbrook Mill. Oh, right. Um, right. That, 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 was that was a bad day for the Parish yeah. That was so just just like let's talk about that a little bit if that's okay. Mm. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. So basically there was a patrol or or you know, a convoy driving along. Well, yeah, well, yeah, no, before yeah. that, the morning, the morning they the, the IRA blew up uh, Mount Batten on his yacht. Yeah, that, same day, that same day. Wow. At the same day. And and in the afternoon. Wow. Uh, a company were driving from Besbrook, which was our base, to relieve B. Their, their advance party was coming to relieve us at uh, Besbrook Mill. Every month we took changed over. And there was a couple of four tonners that were driving past Narrow Water, Warren Point, and uh, a big IED, improvised explosive device, detonated, taking out the four tonners. Uh, incidentally, two of my friends that I joined up with. Barney and Tom Caggy were at the back of the four, one of the four tunnels. And every so often they'd change because of the exhaust fumes. And it was Tom's turn to change. So Tom was sitting out the back of the four tunnel while Barney and the rest of the guys were back inside. When the first bomb went off, Tom was thrown outside and all the rest of them were killed. Tom unfortunately killed himself back in um, September last year. Oh, uh, no. all those years suffering with 35-40% burns. Anyway, so that went off. Uh, we got the warning in um, uh, in Besbrook Mill because there was a sea company patrol, you are right, Neil, that was, that was patrolling the area just by luck, and they put a contact report in, and they went to assist with the bomb, with the bodies and everything else that you do when a, when a bomb goes off, and they put their CP... Mm command point at a most obvious place and that was that was put that was put by it wasn't put by a para i think it was put by some co that was flying in the helicopter commanding officer uh, of the argyle and southern highlanders uh, and the ira had quite cleverly planted another bomb there so that blew up that was the second bomb but i was already in flight with the qrf to come for the first one so the second one exploded when we were in the air and we spent three days securing the area and picking up all the bits of body you know uh so kind of that was an awakening to me and the realities of what war was all about yeah that was you'd been a kid then you were you were a teenager yeah yeah um and bless them, my parents aren't alive now, but there's loads of things that you'd love to ask them. They were on holiday in Ireland at the time. Yes. 
And there's, apparently there's a famous, they said, oh, we knew you were alike because we saw you on the front page of the sun or something. So I said, what do you mean? I, could, I haven't researched this, but they said there was a there was an overhead shot taken by a helicopter, an army helicopter or something, on the front page of the sun, and there's a load of paras giving it the finger. You know. <laughs> so, I don't know. I think that was my mother trying to be wishful thinking, but, you know, yeah, to see that her son was alive. Yeah. It, that was, I don't know, for some reason, that particular incident grabbed my attention. Mm. I haven't been to that part of the world since, but it's it, if you if you see it, you know, now and on Google Maps or whatever, it looks exactly the same. No, as exactly, it is. I've been up there. It's exactly the same. Have you been there, Derek? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More important. Yeah. So, like, yeah, what, what, it's a narrow stretch, isn't it? Um, they, yeah. they actually... Uh, one of the guys on the QRF started shooting across the, the estuary because the estuary's in the yeah. south. Right. Uh, unfortunately, they, they thought they, they found the IRA uh, command point, um, but it was a couple of American tourists. Yeah. One of them was killed, you know. Uh, but yeah. it's a lovely part of the world. It's just the destruction that, that happened that day mm, was yeah. incredible, you know. And did it, did it, did it, a silly question again, Nigel, bear with you, but did it, did it badly affect the paras? you know, in terms no. of afterwards. No, no. Um, there's a there's a famous piece of graffiti um, during Bloody Sunday. And this is as you grow older and you look at things differently, don't you? It was like at uh, Bloody Sunday, you know, uh, Paris, I don't know, whatever the death count was there. Paris, I don't know, what was it? Six, seven, seven IRA yeah. zero. And then when Warren Point happened, it went IRA 16, Paris zero, you know. Yeah, nil. Yeah. Like um, always that always sticks in my mind, and you know, um, no, I don't think it affected me during that because you're when you're that young, you're constantly on the go. It is what you do. Uh, we still had, Christ, that was at the beginning, '79, August '79. We'd only been in the province a couple of months, so we still had a good couple of years to go. Mm. Um, yeah. We lost a few more, but when we le when we left Ireland, we were battle hardened as a battalion. Right. You know, we were because you know, living out there in in. Uh, Jonesburg, uh, Jonesboro, Opin, all those on band in Bandit Country. Andy, it yeah. was just a great setup and training for the Falklands. The weather, of course. You yeah, know. it set you yeah. in a way. It set you up to be in a good. Yeah. We were hard as we were hard as hell as a battalion. There was no. I don't think there would have been battalion in in the rest of the, well, certainly the British Army. Rest of the world could touch us. We yeah. were so slick, and and two years in Northern Ireland. I know that. People have to live there all the time, but we were so switched on on the basic security, personal security drills. It was, it was kind of, uh, you know, kind of really good. Yeah. yeah. And what was your feelings about the, the local population at the time compared to now? Because you mentioned that your 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 feelings toward yeah. the Irish question has changed. What what was it then compared to now? Um. Back then. Uh, look, I'll be frank. It was you know, us or them. We were yeah. with the Protestants, and the Catholics were, you know. Yeah. Um, but that's an ignorance born about by the education that we had. I cringe when I look back at the turn of the last century and look at what the English did to, uh, you know, Devlin and and in that prison, you know, the prison incidents yeah. and stuff. Or, or, I, I just, yeah. and I, you know, and I think that if I was back then, I would be enraged. Mm. <laughs> you know i'd be yeah and just like my experience when i say we invaded iraq 
I mean, I was the first unembedded journalist across the border from Kuwait and I saw what was happening. Uh, the 400 kilometers from the border, Safwan, the, the border town of Iraqi Safwan, all the way into Baghdad, there was nothing. Right. There was nothing. There wasn't even wild tomatoes growing. It was awful place. Uh, Saddam had really put the thumb down on people down south. Um, but that is the way it was. Mm. Um, and we should have left it. So I just think we'd try and invade a sovereign country. And uh, to some extent, I'm, I'm slightly backtracking now with Ireland because they're part of the EU. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I wish Ireland was just on their own, you know, and I think that yeah. would be, that would make me feel a lot better. The fact that they are still part of this EU is, it doesn't sit well with me, mm, really, right. but it's none of my business, I guess. Yeah. But like the, 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 the Falklands was different, though, you know, in comparison to Ireland and, and arguably Iraq, because that was a liberation, wasn't it? The Falklands. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are, there are, uh, you know, there are legal wars, which I consider Iraq wars, and there are unjust wars. But there are also true wars about freedom. And uh, yeah, the Argentinians invaded and we, we kicked them out. Yeah, and well, the majority of Fulton Islanders wanted to be part of Britain. Yeah, what, what yeah. They, they consider themselves English, so yeah. Yeah, they consider themselves, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and arguably, you know, in, in Northern Ireland, there was an element of the population there that wanted to be part of Britain as well. I mean, just... Yeah. Well, like, there still is, is it? That's the thing. It's, it still that, is, that, yeah. that, was a, that was a civil war you guys were, were fighting. It's as simple yeah, as that. I, I mean, I, I understand the population is getting more towards Catholics and, you know, yeah. the red hand is, is, is wavering sort of thing. Um, and there will come a time when, yeah, maybe Northern Ireland does come under. Won't be, won't um, be for a while. Yes, I don't think. I don't. Think uh, but it's, uh, it's a, it's a, I, I don't really know too much about it. But having served there, I've tried to find out. And like I said, I go back to, if I was Irish and English did that, I would be, you know, uh, I would be, I would be, you know, you'd, uh, well. You but, but, but to be fair, Nigel, you know, you were, you were, you know, for want of a better word, a, a squaddy, right? So, like, you know, you weren't making yeah. the, the decisions. You were just, you know, doing your duty. To be, yeah. to be fair, whether you agreed or disagreed with the politics, it's not really a soldier's job, right? Your, your job sure. is to go in and do what effectively what you're told and, and carry, carry, carry out your orders, right? Without getting yeah. into the politics yeah. of it. Which I'm sure you weren't yeah. having political debates back in the barrack room in Bestbrook or whatever in the evening time about whether this was right or wrong. What you were more no, we was probably no. making sure that your weapons were clean, that you knew your operational orders without focusing on the big picture too much. 100%. Yeah, exactly. 100%. Yeah, we would. We, we did try and discuss it because we always used to get copies of An Ancra Black, if I remember, the magazine, the Nationalist magazine. Uh, uh, but but generally now as a ton, as a grand dude, no, you just get on and do it. Uh, it was exciting, not yeah. exciting when the bombs go off, but you know it brings you back to reality. Uh, but as one gets older, and, and I've spent most of my working life in in wars, uh, freeing other people, you know, getting back their freedoms in in either as a soldier or as a military advisor or as a war journalist, um, covering stuff. Uh, I found that um, I'm now having to fight for my own freedom in my own country. Uh, right. Well, that's going down another rabbit hole, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Is we, we we may get there. We may get there. Yeah. <laughs> so, just just tell us a little bit now. So you've transitioned out of the Paris into the SAS. Mm. Um, how long did you serve with the SAS? I served eight years. 
eight years um, ago. I I was uh, I, I suppose it's different. You don't have to salute. You don't have to uh, go around marching. It kind of suited my lifestyle. Everything was sort of kind of Hollywood back then. Um, you know, you'd run around the country with loaded weapons because the IRA threat was still there as you're going on training and doing stuff. A um, lot of lot of good stuff, you know, uh, a lot of good stuff. Um, and I, the guys still do good stuff. But once again, they are, we're, they're at the whim of the politicians. And I sometimes think the politicians don't understand what a massive force the SAS is. Uh, even the parachute regiment and the marines yeah because there's only just over there's only about 200 what we call bayonet troops combat troops in the sas okay. the rest are sort of getting out of the age group but still serving but do the do the backup jobs yeah. right. okay. And, okay. and it's getting more technical now um but yeah i mean i i still see the guys i go up to the mountains once in a while and they still run the selections up there and the helicopters fly over my place, uh, you know, on an irregular basis. Um, yeah, so I get every, see, the thing with me is, I mean, I've spent my time fighting an enemy, uh, not so much in Iraq or Afghan, but, you know, with top cover, with an enemy with air, with an air force. So every time I, I hear, this is a strange thing from my background, my, my, my generation, every time I hear a jet, high-flying, low-flying jet, or a helicopter, I think, ah, is it coming to kill me, attack me, or is it coming to wow. is it coming for a Kazavak? Yeah. Whereas okay. the salt with the soldiers that have fought in Afghan and Iraq, they always think of, oh, it's coming in to help us, support us, fire support, or come pick up something, or drop rations off, you know, drop some sort of chocolate off or something. But no, <laughs> I every time I hear one, I have to it's a it's a, it's a nightmare living in my head because I have to deduce whether it's friend or foe you know part of that yeah essentially that you're describing you know ptsd for want of a better word or just the mm. after effects of you know being yeah. in combat situations like that yeah i mean it's uh i mean i check my vehicle all the time i'm always looking yeah. okay. for ambushes ieds it's it's it just spins around in the head there and it's it's kind of pissy really because you can't really go for a quiet quiet drink really okay. i can't be in a a, a, a crowded bar, no way. Really, Maybe because I can't hear too much, but I just don't like it. Why? Why yeah. don't you like it, Nigel? A crowded bar specifically? Yeah, I, because I have to. I have to. It sounds pathetic, really, but I have to look at escape escape routes. Mm, yeah, um, and and the little the one time I have done not facing the wall, sat with my back, people come up and sort of surprise you and stuff, and. It, yeah. It just sends me into a rage for about a, a second, and then I calm down, and then I get, then I have to walk out, then it upsets me. Um, I kind of sort of get shivery. It's 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 kind of a weird thing to have, but I've lived with it for so long. Yeah. That um, I I kind of don't put myself in those positions anymore. Yeah. Totally it totally does happen. It's like having an electric shock. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I could well believe it. I mean, with the with the kind of, I suppose, with how you served and where you served yeah. and the events you served in, you'd, you'd absolutely expect to have uh, some yeah. some degree of that, that for sure. And that leads to the question. So, you know, as a, as a an SAS operative and the two power and the excitement and the thrill and all that stuff, and you make that decision, you're going to leave the forces. Like a lot of people, you know, who are doing that stuff, you're going, what the hell do I do mm. next? Mm. Yeah, and yeah what, well, what do you do? Well, 
I mean, I got a traumatic injury in um, while in the SAS, while overseas in uh, the jungle. And um, so kind of my career was defined in the sense that um, I couldn't really serve on a front line anymore, you know, because it was a, it was a, um, affected the head and the eye. So I was, I didn't fancy staying in that environment, but I was offered, uh, I, I was offered decent work doing the same stuff, what they, they used to call black ops, by the British government, you know, working over in Africa and the Middle East, doing stuff that the British government didn't want to be aligned to, see, to be aligned to. And that was all run by SAS guys. So a bit of the sort of forerunner of what's happening now with, um, you know, these private military companies working that worked over in Iraq, mm. Afghanistan. Um, a, a lot of the, a, a, a lot of the American army in Vietnam, it started where they started to uh, subcontract out running of the camps, doing the right. laundry, doing the food, the cooks, cooking and everything. And that's moved into the, the British armed forces. So there's yeah. lots of these ex guys out running. Say you're an engineer, you're out running an engineer, getting paid twice as much money um, without all the bullshit, really. Um, but for my being a combat soldier, that's what we did. We went out and did stuff. Uh, so that kind of kept me, uh, uh, that kind of kept me going for a bit. You know, and I sort of did Africa and um, and then I ended up in Kuwait working as a military advisor. And then there was rumblings at the back end of 2002, summer of 2002, that there was going to be some kind of um, thing that's going to happen to Saddam. So I then got all my accreditation uh, and became a sort of war photojournalist. Okay. Okay. So you, you followed the action. I followed the action. Yeah. And um, this is where the book bring me the answer of Saddam comes in. I, a friend of mine had just happened to be leave the SES and his company had got a contract with Sky News. Now Sky News had lost out on, in Gulf War One because they'd recently been formed and they weren't going to lose that in 2003. So they, and it was one of the first wars that the term embedded and unembedded journalists came came to fame. Um, being embedded meant that you were attached to a unit, whether it's back in Qatar or one of the first recon marine units, you know, you that's where you were embedded and you weren't allowed to leave there and your copy was censored. Um, and then it was unembedded. People like myself running around the countryside, you know, getting stories the best we can. And I teamed up with a friend of mine, Jay Way, who left the Reg, his contract was with Sky News. I They wanted to be based in Kuwait. I knew Kuwait, so we teamed up. I became a second sort of security guy because they only had one. And they would post my copy because back then all they had was the Thryer sat phone and they had to edit the stuff. Uh, so it worked well, yeah. Um, yeah, it was up there at the front all the time with the Marines. I broke the story of uh, I interviewed the doctor that saved Jessica Leach, the woman oh, wow. soldier, American soldier that uh, got yeah. ambushed convoy. A convoy was shut up. She was saved. The Iraqi doctor saved her. But, you know, the, the Western media said, oh, you know, the Iraqis had raped her and done all that, you know, went down that avenue, which was mm. totally untrue. Um, I then, when we got into Al Nazari, which is the biggest battle of the invasion, okay, 
not liberation, as far as I'm concerned, it was an invasion. Um, Sky News policy was not allowed to send their correspondents off to interview the forward troops. Uh, so I was asked, would I like to go? Because their insurance didn't cover them. And also by that time, after the battle, the main correspondent, the cameraman, the sound guy, and our fixer interpreter, Ali, decided to jack. Yeah. So they, so Sky, so uh, they, uh, they had to wait for re reinforcements to come in. And that, during that time, there was a lull in the battle. Well, the battle had been won, but there was a, a lull in the moving forward. I went and interviewed the Colonel of the, um, Colonel Grubovich of the Marines who actually took the bridge at Al Nazareth. Quite a famous battle. Um, just got lost in time, but it was the defining battle because there's two roads crossing uh, to get into uh, to get into the road to Baghdad, and there was two big bridges, and the Marines kept kept one open all the time, you know. Um, so that that was a that was a interesting and kind of scary thing for me because we were getting shot at all the time. And then a, a couple of weeks later, we're still at the vault. We're still advancing forward, being the being the unembedded team. There was four or five of us with Sky News, and we just kept going, driving ahead, forging ahead. We eventually got into uh, Baghdad the day, yeah, the day they pulled the statue down. And the following morning, we were held up in a in the old Saddam Hussein Revolutionary Guard barracks that the Marines had taken over, and the Marines had held us hostage because they did. They said it's too dangerous to go out. But we needed to get to the Palestine Hotel, which was where the world's press were that had been yeah. there under the eye of uh, Kamikal Ali and Saddam Hussein. And that's where we wanted to go to because that was the center of it all. Uh, so we, uh, between myself and Jay, JY, we devised a, a plan to get out of the barracks because we know the way the army works. You know, if you link yourself onto the back of a convoy going out on patrol, you wait, stay there. and the, four o'clock in the morning you know people are at the lowest ebb we just tagged on behind them and before the barrier could get dropped again we were out so we raced up to there and uh, when i got to uh Ferdor square the palestine hotel which was the like i say the main point of where all the world's journalists were and there's a street called sadoon street we were racing up there and um it, I, i've written it down in the book you know where the abram tank took out a French reporter from the 14th story of the uh, Palestine Hotel. That was still smouldering. Anyway, they all went off. Nick Pennell, the producer of Sky, and I think at the time, yeah, we had the anchor man who joined us from Basra, or what's his name? Jeremy Thompson. He had joined us because the story wasn't Basra with the Brits. The story was Baghdad, of course. Uh, and he realized how fast we were heading towards it. So he just jacked Basra and came and joined us. He was the big cheese, you know. Um, when we got to <laughs> when we got to Ferdor Square in the Palestine Hotel, there was a load of crowds that cheered us. It was like, you know, sort of, I don't know. Sort of, I, I couldn't make of it, but these journalists were all there, all backslapping each other, and they did a, a live to camera back to London a live feed back to London, set up all the camera equipment. And uh, it was kind of fun, really. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? So I wandered over to these Marines who were guarding this big statue that, that, that was on the ground by now. And I just, because I can speak their tone, uh, I just said to them, hey, buddy, um, any chance of coming over and having a look? And uh, they said, well, I said, look, I'm special.
special forces, you know, I'm like a Delta, which they understood. I said, I'm so yes, sir. They said, oh, yeah, buddy, come and have a look. <laughs> so anyway, they escort me over to this thing. It wasn't as an impress. It wasn't as impressive as what I thought it was. It looked a lot taller, but it, when it's on the ground, it's quite well. It's, it's still big, but it looks smaller than what it was. So I'm having around there. The odd angry shot going off in the distance. Then, then the Marines open up with a fifty cal and start ripping down the part of the building, getting a, a Iraqi sniper. And I see this guy with the head of this statue, and I said, "It can't be the head of this statue I'm leaning against, the Saddam head." Uh, so I went over there and uh, I started to barter with the guy until it, the Marines were screaming at me to get back in because there was a firefight happening. So I ran back in and eventually when the couple of hours later, the, the fire fights sort of died down, I said, can I have a piece of this statue, like a momentum? I wanted about a square inch or something. <laughs> and they said, yeah. So they came out with a sledgehammer and crowbar and started smashing at this piece of uh, statue while another lad with a steel uh, disc cutter cut off the, that hand, that famous hand. <coughs> anyway, I, out popped his, uh, a big piece, a big piece of bronze. I mean, it's kind of huge, about a metre and a half square. And uh, he said, will that do you, buddy? And I said, uh, yeah, that'll do, thanks. I thought, how the hell am I going to get this back? Uh, it turned out to be his left buttock. So, <laughs> yeah, so... That's the arse. <laughs> After the, that's after, the arse of the title. Where, where is it now? Where, yeah. Well, after three days in, in Baghdad, they had to. The Sky Team changed over, and they went for a new one to go up to Tikrit because that's apparently where Saddam was held out. Uh, um, I decided to go back to uh, back to Kuwait, so I I bought um, Jeremy Thompson back. I bought the. Paul, a son, a son reporter back with me. We took two car convoy. Uh, a couple of other guys came back from the Sky team uh, and I briefed them up what to do, anti-ambush drills, stuff like that, you know, and they were sort of getting a bit bored with it. And I said, listen, lads, you know, I want you to switch and otherwise you, you can stay here. You're not coming back with me, you know. Um, they took it all on board. And luckily, the Andy, Andy, the driver of the second vehicle was incredible because we got ambushed about six miles outside of heading back south around the ring road of Baghdad and he did exactly what I told him to do stick the thing in reverse and just get get out of it which we did um so we had a couple of episodes like that we got back to the border town of Safwan my truck a Jeep Cherokee was losing oil had been losing oil about a day after we um crossed the border when we got attacked well we almost got vaporized by three Cobra gunships, like the Apache, but the Marine, US Marines fly Cobras. Um, so I was getting low on oil. So every time, every so often I had to stop the top up with oil. And, um, you know, that was always a danger, stopping yeah. in the open, uh, open planes and stopping up with oil. So anyway, eventually got back, we got, we got attacked again in Safwan, but eventually made it to the, to the border crossing which wasn't defined, but the Iraqi, the Kuwaiti army had put up the border crossing. And then when we went past the Kuwaiti army, there was the Kuwaiti police and they stopped us and arrested us. And oh. uh, uh, Jeremy had a picture of Saddam, which didn't go down to, a couple of guys had some AK-47 magazines, no ammunition in them. So the fair play to the Kuwaiti police, they took this as an opportunity to basically completely search the vehicle and piss us off. Um, and they found the, the big piece of bronze 
And I thought, well, I'm not going to say anything. It's it's part of Saddam's statue, you know, that famous one they pulled mm -hmm. down. I said, that's a bullet catcher, because I had sandbags under my seat and at the back. Yeah. And the guy just, because it's 55 degrees heat, I've gone, it's for bullets. Bullets, like the sandbag. He went, oh, okay, okay, I understand. So he left it in there. Amazing. And then we were banged up for six, seven hours. But it was the best six, seven hours I've spent in a police station because they played <laughs> us with dates, you know, soft drinks, fruit. It was fantastic. We had had fruit for like three, four weeks. Brilliant. Nice, so, nice. Anyway, I eventually got it back. Um, I eventually flew back to UK. But before I flew back, I, um, I had to get on. I always flew British Airways. And uh, the guy, who was very polite at Kuwait Airport, said, any extra baggage? I said, yeah this big one because i had to go down to the local suit to buy a big plastic case big enough to put this piece of bronze in and he says uh, what's in there then i said oh it's a damn's ass and he just laughed he said okay that'll be 165 pounds or whatever it was <laughs> and then that's it and then um a couple of years later three four years later i uh, sort of divorce came through and all that stuff so we had to move out the house all that stuff you know all that and I found this arse and I thought, what am I going to do with that? So I went to put it up for charity to raise money for the Royal Centre for Defence Medicine and the Wounded Warriors uh, charity over in America, which helps the Marines. And I thought that's quite fitting. But as yeah. soon as I put it up for charity, all hell came down on me. I um, the If it was 25 grand, I had a reserve of £250,000 on it because I thought, well, Somebody advised me, a friend that works over in the Middle East, that works for a big auction house over there, says, well, look, it's worth minimum 40000 but, you know, you really should go for two fifty dollars because it's just a one-off. So I put it up there, and uh, that's when the the police came down. They arrested me. They tried to find the arse. Uh, they bailed me seven times, threatened me with seven to ten years stretch in jail Jeez. for uh, for breaking the United Nations Section eight, stealing, stealing Iraqi cultural property. So oh, that's what the book's all about. And the, the arse then went on the run. It's still on the run now. Right. We might have somebody. Somebody's after the film on it. Uh, because I own, because I wrote the book and I own all the rights. So, yeah. You know, but I've been there with the film with Goose Green. I mean, COVID kick that into touch because we lost our investors uh right. but uh, i think the i think bring me the arse of saddam has a greater chance because it's a bit lesser budget and it's kind of a comical thing as well as long as they keep the title, as, as long as they keep the the title it's brilliant yeah. you know they, they uh, yeah thanks yeah. yeah yeah i mean i laugh every time i, I tell uh, a bit of that story you know it's great. You've and, had and so many stories. it really it really yeah, is cool to talking to you um you know, where 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 do we wrap up, Derek? I mean, we could talk. Well, the thing is, right? I know we're thinking about that because we could go on like, <laughs> another couple of hours in in, in all oh, the ways. Before uh, you'll be, we you'll be you editing go, all I... the time. You'll be editing. Oh, not at all. There's no editing. Not at all. Not at all. Not it's at all, all, it's it's all going. Well, our, so our, our, our... just before just before we you go, hmm. Nigel, right? Because this is yeah. this is your latest project, so you might as well introduce to that and give us a quick on. You've moved from a life of being in the heart of action into the complete yeah. opposite now. So, what's the story? Well, uh, I live off grid now. I produce my own, well, harvest my own rainwater. Um, I produce my own power via solar panels, or I've got a small eco 
portable generator that I, that fires up when my battery bank goes down. Um, I wanted to do it because I wanted an easier life. I wanted a more um, less stressful life. But I now find myself surviving 50% of my time. So that's what it takes to live off grid. At least 50% of the times uh, uh, trying to survive to get your power, to, to, to get your food. I grow my own vegetables. I've learned how to do that. I want a slim, simplistic life. And I also wanted to know if it was achievable living a green life. Um, and I have to say, most people aren't fit enough yeah. or mentally hard enough to do what I do. They are just not. And they will be very surprised how hard it is. Um, so I want it, and I'm writing a book about my experience. It's going to, I sit on the fence with the green issues because I'm a practical type of guy. And I've had to use my military experience in order to survive against Mother Nature, uh, which I kind of enjoy because Mother Nature is cruel. I mean, cruel, my, my cottage got flooded, but I've been here 20 years and it's only flooded in the last three years. And that's not because of climate change or global warming. It's because the government do not pay the farmers to dredge the tributaries that yeah. go into the river Wye. Uh, and that's as simple as that. Um, so, yeah, all these ideas that I'm putting to test, I'm doing it practically. And hopefully the book will be more about green issues, more about living off the grid, more about sort of the quirkiness of living in the countryside. Um, my SAS background doesn't leave me, unfortunately. There's been a couple of, I think, the how many times? One, two, I think three times the armed police from the SAS camp have been called out to me. <laughs> wow. You know, I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but I mean, not yeah. certain incidences, but that's all in the book. So it's a comical way. I mean, how many people would say that? Uh, it's just crazy. Um, but yeah, there you go. I, I hope to have the book out next year. Well, you signed up really. as a friend of the historians now, so we'll have you back for that one. That's <laughs> sure. well, you got it. You got well, it. That'd be great. I mean, I, 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 you know, I love the format. I mean, you guys are really warming, and uh, you. you know, you let me chat, which is kind of kind that's of nice. That's most important. If people tell their stories. It's it's you know it's that's why we always just play it by ear, Nigel. You know, just let the people tell their stories and don't be interrupting. And that's why it's different format to a radio interview where they like got time constraints and are cutting yeah. in and out. So it's just great to, to but you know what? We've had other guests on here from fancy studios in New York and all mm. other places. But you're working really well here. No glitches whatsoever. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> with, your, with your solar panels and your outdoor. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's bloody hard work, mind, I tell you. Uh, yeah, no, they not, will not survive. They yeah, won't no, survive they, without... Sorry. So, no, I was just going to say, you read about these lifestyles in uh, Sunday newspaper magazines, you know. Mm. Um, and they go, oh yeah, they'll live off grid and they go out to the wilderness. But I don't think people have a bollocks. They have a single idea clue. Of what it's all about. I mean, I sell a bit of firewood, you know, because what I do is I coppice trees. I, you know, um, I keep fit that way. I coppice farmers' trees. Uh, I take down wood. Uh, I've got standing hardwoods here, and people do not know how to even light a fire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't know. We have us two pampered Dublin boys over, Nigel. You can show us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Derek, Derek does a bit of hill climbing, but you know, I, yeah. I, 
furthest I've gone in, in recent months is my back garden. Well, you can go up, the, go up the Penny Fan. That's a good little walk, isn't it? Well, we'll have to do it. We'll have yeah. to do that together in in the future. But in the meantime, now, what an honour! Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, so much. Thank you guys for the invite. Thank you for showing an interest. I, I appreciate it. Brilliant, brilliant, yeah. Unbe unbelievable. Just uh, you know, just the, the the amount of stories that are there, the wealth, oh. life experience. Um, coping with PTSD, the after effects of that. He, he covered like in, in you know little short sentences. We didn't get to go too deep, but he covered so many parts of the military life. What it's like to be a soldier. What it's like that. to be a soldier, and that's ultimately what we're kind of you know when you read about history. You know the the one like I was talking about it's the anniversary of Rourke's Drift, and it happened like doesn't matter a couple hundred years ago. But what must it have been like to be there? That's mm -hmm. that's. That's what you always wonder when you're reading about battles in particular, which we're both yeah. interested in. And you just heard it right there, right there from yeah. a man. And fairly, fairly low key about it, like, you know. And, and he's, uh, he's, he's, he's numb to it, yeah. I mean, for sure, you, you've got to develop your own coping mechanisms. There's so much to cope with. Um, and seeing your buddies die and things like that, it, you know, it, it, it's, got to, it's got to have its effects. Absolutely, uh, but, but you know, he's a cool, calm character. Like, he's... Not, he's yeah, he's a very likable, affable uh, man, I would say, and, and and looks. I mean, can I say it? He looks a little bit cuddly or soft, <laughs> you know, like you, Derek, like just just like you. Um, yeah, but I, I'd yeah. say, you know, I, I was kind of only maybe being a bit facetious about, uh, you know, seeing if he'd he'd take us on over to some, you know, off grid living. I'd say we'd la well, I'd I'd probably last about an hour. You might last a little bit longer, but. <laughs> Half a day, yeah. But it just goes to show you, like, you know, that's the sort of man he is. And a jump out line for me was when he said he actually, when you were asking about joining the SES, he was like, well, you know, I was getting bored with the paras. Bored with the paras? How the hell do you get bored with the paras? That I think that was an insight into the man. He just needs to have that kind sure. of different thing. He's not going to be sitting in an office making photocopies of, of no. sports. He's just not that kind of man. Brilliant guest. Well, brilliant. yeah. All right, listeners, um, thank you for joining us again on The Hipstorians, and we will see you again next week. Take care. Take care. Bye.